This is the ZMAR Podcast. Elite Benefits of America helps small and mid-sized companies with their health insurance programs. And now, your host, Butch ZMAR. Quick updates as we head into the open enrollment season for employers. And a lot of the businesses, small, mid-size, um, and even large companies are renewing their health insurance plans sometime in the fourth quarter leading into January 1st. Some are mid-year, but for those who are expecting renewals, the October and November uh, renewals are in-house. Many of them are already done. Open enrollments are scheduled. So if you haven't got that far in your renewal somewhere between October and November, you need to get on your current broker or call the insurance company, make sure you get the renewal. December's are going to be here sometime this month. Right now, the recording's the first uh, or actually the second of September. Um, so later this month, we'll get December's. And then sometime in October, we'll get the January 1, uh, 1 renewals. Some will be out a little bit earlier, depending on carrier and location in the region. But when you go through the process of the renewal and figuring out where you're going to be going into the next year, 2022, you have to determine what's working right now, whether it's administratively technology compliance or the benefit offering and, of course, what you're paying. Uh, and then it'll go through what's not. Obviously, everybody's going to complain about cost. But cost isn't the only thing. It's important, but it's not the only thing. You need to evaluate a whole bunch of other stuff as you go through it. Employees are obviously the driving force of the uh, of your company, and so therefore you have to make sure that they're content and they're happy, and there's got to be other ways to uh, get around things, whether it's cost, coverage, administration, or compliance side, just to make sure everything is uh, wrapped up for your employees for 2022. You need to see if there's better options. You may end up staying right where you're at. Many of our smaller clients definitely do. The issue is is not knowing whether or not there's something better. Because you could be with the same carrier for several years and find out you could get something similar. Uh, it may be, have some trade-offs, uh, but it could give you some savings that you're looking forward to. It may give you access to certain hospitals that you didn't have before. So just by having that second look just at least puts your mind at ease that you're doing your due diligence. Some things to consider for this open enrollment period, especially in the year of COVID, a lot of companies moved to electronic onboarding and benefit administration last year, but uh, a lot more are going to continue to keep moving to the electronic basis. It minimizes tons of time, not only for your staff, but the broker you're working with it, and minimizes the amount of time that it takes for the process, the applications and get access to the data. Plus, um, there are times where when we're doing paperwork, the employee didn't fill out all the paperwork right and then we're chasing the employee or there's an assumption of a waiver and, and that we have to get confirmation of the waiver and there's all kinds of stuff. Whereas an electronic benefit administration system, they have to elect or waive coverage as they go through the process and it will get notifications if they're in the middle of it and never completed it and we can send reminders but uh, they have to complete all the applications for all the products available in order to complete the application process. Deadlines, there's definitely deadlines. You have to make sure that you not only get the renewal done, if there's any plan changes, you have to get the documentation in time to the insurance company. And then, of course, the open enrollment status uh, or open enrollment for the employees, giving them enough time to take it home and talk to their family, and then obviously picking a plan and getting the paperwork back to the broker or back um, having the enrollment process completed and um, and submit it to the insurance company in time. Uh, you could avoid last-minute anxiety if you plan early enough. You could technically actually do open enrollments in October and November for a January 1st start date. You don't need to wait until December to do it. 
but a lot of employers will do it the first couple weeks of December, get everything processed the last two weeks and temporary insurance cards in hands by January 1, and then insurance cards to follow by mail. But these are all the things that uh, you definitely have to start asking questions for and um, setting um, parameters around and deadlines so that you, everything moves as efficiently as possible so that no one's scrambling at the last second. If you own a business, Elite Benefits of America wants to remind you that health insurance open enrollments are either happening now or coming very quickly. And this is the time to review and implement a health care plan to make or keep you as the employer of choice. Deadlines for open enrollment range between November 1st and January 1st. Get ahead of the curve. The Small Business Special Enrollment Period, part of the Affordable Care Act, now allows employers with 49 employees and under to offer health benefits without contributing a dime to the employee plan. Help your employees save money on taxes with health insurance they're already paying for with their hard-earned dollars. Butch Zemar from Elite Benefits of America wants you to reach out to him today. Visit EliteBenefits.net or call 708-535-3006. Today I have Chip, uh, is it Depreter? Depreter, yeah. Yeah, and so um, he is a uh, trademark or patent attorney. He'll get into more depth exactly what he does here in a minute, and then we'll have a discussion how to protect some uh, small and mid-sized companies. Thanks for coming to the show. Yeah, I appreciate it much. Uh, You reached out to me a little while ago about doing this, and I was excited. This is going to be a good time. Yeah, fantastic. Can you give our audience just a little background on what you do? And um, obviously you're in Chicago, but uh, what you do for small and mid-sized companies? Sure. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, my name is Chip DePreter. I'm an attorney at Ehrenberg, Golgan, Davis & Garmissa here in Chicago. It's a business firm. And I'm uh, one of the uh, partners here in the IP group uh, for intellectual property. And we focus on protecting companies and individuals' uh, intellectual property that consists of trademarks, patents, copyrights, uh, trade secrets, and uh, trademarks, service marks. So it's the, the basically the entire pool of uh, what people can end up protecting when it comes to their intellectual output. And basically what it does for small businesses is, you know, every day you're out there promoting your business, uh, you're creating new products, you're trying to bring in new customers, and the intellectual property is basically the the information that is being created behind the scenes and then pushed out to the customers. So if it's a trademark, it's your brand. If it's a patent, it's uh, covering the actual structure or the design of a product that you're putting out there. Uh, trade secrets might be your customer lists or your methods of operation or manufacturing, something like that. And copyrights uh, cover anything that you've uh, reduced to a tangible medium. So if you put out a, a podcast or if you've put out uh, pictures or your website, those are all subject to copyright. So we help protect all of that to make sure that people aren't taking it or that people aren't confused um, and so that you, you capture that value that you're, being, that you're creating it anyway. Uh, you're, you're always going to be pushing out your brand. You're always going to be developing new products. And so the, the intellectual property is there. It's just whether or not you're actually capturing and protecting it. 
So a lot of companies, uh, I mean, years ago, uh, when I wasn't even really in business for myself, it was right after my military venture moving into the small businesses. You know, they mentioned this thing called the the poor man's copyright. And can you elaborate on uh, what that is and then what it, what it, what it's not? And because I do know there's limitations to that, um, but I know a lot of sm- small businesses have mentioned this throughout the years, to, even to me. Yeah, you know, essentially, the the copyright statute is very, very broad. Uh, As I mentioned, anything reduced to a tangible medium, uh, basically anything you've recorded in basically any way, is automatically subject to copyright. So if I've got my notepad here as I'm taking notes even on this podcast, when I scribble down a note, automatically that is subject to copyright. It's something that I created. It's my work of authorship. I wrote it down, and therefore... I own the copyright in that material, and if someone else came in and copied it, uh, they would be infringing my copyright. The The problem with that is that the court system is set up so that you can't sue anyone for copyright infringement unless you actually have a registration, which means you have to apply to the uh, copyright office, you submit your work, and uh, it gets registered. The bar for registration is fairly low. Um, but once it's registered, then you can enforce your copyright against other people. So the the whole idea that you know everything is copyrighted is technically correct, but usually people are only going to uh, actually go through the steps of registering something that they believe will have actual value that someone actually might want to to copy. So that's when it comes into things that you're going to be pushing out to the public. You know, if you've got uh, marketing material uh, that you know, you've put a lot of time and effort into crafting the message of the marketing material, then you might want to submit that to the copyright office so that your competitor, who's in the same business as you are, doesn't just take your marketing pamphlet, photocopy it, and start using it. And basically what you're saying is uh, if I created a document, like you mentioned a marketing piece, I can't just put copyright uh, Butch Zemar at the bottom of it, 2021, and call it a day? You can't. You can't. Because it is copyrighted, and it's copyrighted by you. What it's not is it's not registered. And the registration is what allows you to actually you know, enforce that copyright. That you created it, you absolutely did, and you can put copyright, and you can uh, let people know that you're the originator of that content. Um, the the registration <clears throat> is really there for the enforcement of the copyright. So if somebody tried stealing uh, any marketing material on a small business or um, something that could be related to a, a product, if it's not registered, it would be super hard to actually enforce that copyright. Is that correct? Well, sort of, yeah. The, <clears throat> what would happen is, let's go back to the marketing piece. You have a marketing piece. You put that out there, you find out that someone's copying it, you hadn't registered it yet. So if you want to get them to stop, you've got to go through the registration process. You got to take your piece, you file uh, copyright registration with the Copyright Registration Office. Uh, There's a little government fee involved. Uh, We help people do that all the time. A couple of months go by, it takes the Copyright Office a little time to uh, go through and actually issue the registration. Once they issue the registration, then you can assert your registration against the person that stole it. Uh, The downside of of doing it that way, waiting for the infringement and then filing for the registration is you're really only going to be entitled to injunctive relief, meaning you can force them to stop 
but you're not going to get any money damages. And uh, this copyright office and statute is set up so that it's encouraging you to re register things a little more proactively. And so there's statutory damages that you can get for uh, infringement if you have a registration first and then someone starts copying it. So that's uh, something that a lot of, you know, music artists are going to obviously copyright all of their stuff. Uh, photo uh, photographers copyright their photographs because they're being put up on the internet and people take them. But when you register, when you register, and then someone steals your, your copyrighted material, you can say, hey, I'm entitled to my statutory damages, um, which can be substantial, and I don't, you don't have to prove that you were ever damaged at all. So it's just a little more powerful and beneficial to be a little more proactive. There's obviously a process that business owners need to walk through. You brought up music, so I come up with this small little, we'll call it a riff, and say, okay, I want to copyright this because it's mine. And then there's a process that goes along with that because, I mean, there's so many lawsuits with music because there's so many um, variables that come into play of how close one sounds versus another. And we don't need to get too um, in-depth there in the engineering side of it. But what's the process, I guess, business owners should go through, whether they're trying to copyright something such as the music or they're trying to patent a product that they're trying to bring to development and they're in the middle of that development phase and how do they make sure they're not infringing on somebody else? Yeah, I mean, that, those are a couple of big differences. So the copyright is once you create your, your work, uh, you can file it with the Copyright Office and there's a procedure. It's basically filling filling out uh, the the forms, necessary forms to do that. There's We can do it online. Usually when we're working with our clients, they submit whatever their work is to us and we go through the process. We converse with the, the Copyright Office and if there's an, any kind of issue along the way, we help resolve it by discussing with the copyright examiner what the, the issues might be and, and getting those resolved so the copyright gets through. Patents is a little bit different. You know, a patent system is very rigorous. You have your design, whatever the, you know, the invention is, and it is a dialogue then between myself and the inventor uh, over what is the, the overall invention. You know, if you have this machine that you're looking to patent, there's there's going to be pieces of it that uh, are you know new and different, novel, not obvious to what whatever came before, and it's a process of writing up a document, which ends up being the patent, discussing what that is, and you know with reference to drawings and uh, a description of what that the whole invention is, and then some very specific paragraphs. De defining what the invention is, and that gets submitted to the Patent and Trademark Office, and then there's a lot of back and forth between uh, the patent attorney and the, the trademark or the uh, patent examiner to usher that through the system. You know, and people always say, "Well, I just want, I want to patent something. I want a patent. I want a patent." Well, you know, it's difficult because it has to be new, novel, not obvious. Uh, you think there's, you know. The patent system in the United States has been going on since the inception of the country, and there's only been about 10 million or so patents issued. So, you know, they, they don't hand them out like candy, even though it seems like it's sometimes uh, you see some big companies have you know, thousands of patents issued. Well, yeah, but they're they're doing millions and billions of dollars worth of, of research and development uh, into 
those those new products. So, and obviously, attorneys that work with this, such as yourself, have to have some type of technical background. Uh, I don't know if that's the exact term for it, but they have to have something. And then you went the your undergrad was in electrical engineering, and I'm actually curious of why you picked electrical en- engineering over maybe other engineering backgrounds or other things that would relate to uh, what an uh, intellectual property attorney would uh, would need in, a, in advance. Yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. You have to have to to be a patent attorney or patent agent, which is similar, uh, and file things with the patent office, converse with the patent office, and work with the inventors. You have to have some type of of technical background, whether it's an engineering background or a a hard uh, technical background like physics or chemistry. For me, I I chose electrical engineering. I was interested in it coming out of high school. Uh, I just liked the you know, electrical electronic components, how they work. There's always sort of a, a fascination of well, how how does you know the how how do how do these electrical signals actually work in those chips to produce the end result? You know, how does that TV work? How does that phone work? How how does my uh, DVD player you know shoot a laser and and end up reproducing an image? So I was interested in that kind of thing, and that's how I got into electrical electronic engineering. Um, and and that basically in, informs my uh, ability to talk on a competent technical level with inventors. And so I'm, I'm siloed into the mechanical, electromechanical, electronic area. Once things start to get into, you know, say biotech or chemistry, for example, um, I'm I'm just as <laughs> I'm just as clueless as everybody else, and so I have to pass that along to to one of my other uh, partners or, um, you know, networking uh, people that I know do that kind of work. I had a a doctor come in one time that had developed this, you know, or basically group of what he therapy and drugs, uh, and I had no idea what he was talking about. But thankfully, I did know a a biotech person and happily passed his name along to her. Yeah, and and I think that's great. And attorneys do that extremely well. I wish insurance agents would silo their business a little bit more. But some days we're a jack of all trades and a master of none. But uh, that that'll be another topic for a different day. One thing I, I do want to bring up, just for our audience, and I thought it would be fun, is that sometimes trademarks can get a little bit off the beaten beaten track, and uh, some things get approved and and some don't. And that's what the registration office is for. And and one of your LinkedIn's posts, even though it was a while ago, that you thought it was interesting that um, Ohio State was trying to register the word the, the so they could do the Ohio State, and um, I don't think it got anywhere. But yeah, well, I, first talk about trademarks. I think that for the for the small and mid-sized business group, uh, trademarks is one of the most valuable pieces of intellectual property that uh, you can have. It's also sort of a, a low-hanging fruit. You know, you're out there pushing your business and trying to get them in people's front of people's minds and have your customers be repeat customers. Your trademark is that anchor. It is what defines you as a company. And when people think of your name or your symbol, emblem, um, you know, mascot, what have you. You want people to think immediately of you and only you, and that's what the trademark does. The trademark defines this uh, group of words or symbols or uh, graphic as associating a particular business with your business. And so by, by registering that, 
you are presumed to be the owner of it and the sole owner and exclusive owner throughout the entire United States. Uh, so registering a, a trademark is a really easy way to uh, be forefront and protect your brand uh, and have customers associating your brand with you. Uh, so that it's extremely important. And, when it comes to the the Ohio State, you know everyone jokes about the Ohio State, especially people that go to the Ohio State love to to push that the. But the I think in the long run, everyone sort of came to the conclusion that uh, trying to trademark the the really wasn't um, a serious attempt. It was more of a PR stunt. Which, as a as a trademark attorney, really just an attorney in general, I, I sort of bristle at using the trademark office and registration process as a, a PR marketing tool. I think that that's uh, improper, not just because I'm not the biggest Ohio State fan, sorry people, but, uh, you know, I, it, it came down to uh, what is a trademark really for? And the, the trademark is supposed to be a, a source identifier so that when people see the trademark, they think of you. And... Ohio State's problem there was the, just on its own, because that's all you have to look at. That's what they filed for, so it's all you look at is the. You don't look at Ohio State at all. Um, when people see the word the on a shirt or an association with a school, do they think of the Ohio State? No. You know, the is a ubiquitous word um, that isn't you know, particular to anybody, even you know, Ohio State. There are plenty of schools that begin with the word the, and so there is no way that uh, the on its own was going to, to make it through. It's just, it's too ubiquitous. So it's not, not distinct enough, and that's, that's where the trademark kind of comes in. You got to have something, some name that is distinct to you. And that would make sense. Uh, uh, bringing up another school just briefly, and we don't uh, have to get in too depth, but there was, I saw a note that Boise State trademarked the, the blue turf and uh, they got it through. Well, sure, because if you, if you think, you know, look at college football and all the games that you see, if, if I see out of the corner of my eye that there's a game being played on blue turf, I know that it's Boise State. By seeing that immediately, I think of one source of that game, and that's exactly what a trademark does. And there's all kinds of examples of, of colors that can be used as trademarks. Um, the, another famous one is the Tiffany blue, uh, and you know Tiffany. That, they were just in the news uh, recently for a. I think they sold the brand, the Tiffany brand. It was something like three or four billion dollars. Um, but but there again, what's valuable isn't the actual underlying jewelry or craftsmanship. Uh, although that's important to maintaining the brand and, and customer loyalty. But what brings customers in is the name Tiffany and the blue box. You know, that's value. And so as you're building building your company, protecting those trademarks is, is protecting the value that you are accumulating in the growth of the business. For a lot of our audience in the small and mid-sized markets, um, is there just a, a, maybe one or two pointers that uh, you want to just point out uh, when they're trying to maybe maybe this podcast maybe bring things to light and say, yeah, maybe I need to do something about this. 
maybe there are some preliminary steps before calling someone like you, or maybe there's some things that they could do on their end uh, just well in advance of the conversation so they're a little bit more prepared and, and save time and money with um, attorneys such as yourself. Yeah, I always encourage people that are thinking of, you know, if you're going to start naming something, again, the whole key, when it, and, and this is specific for trademarks, uh, the whole key is that you want it to be distinctive of yourself. So if there's already someone out there using a trademark or a similar name, you know, you want to swim to clearer water. Uh, you don't want to have a, a name that's that's close to them, not only because you don't want to infringe. I mean, that's a big part of it. But the second thing is you want to be distinct. So it doesn't do you any good to have a name or mark that might be close to or confusing with a potential competitor because then that's defeating the purpose of you distinguishing yourself. So uh, Google searches, obviously, if you're looking for, you know, whatever, uh, let's say you're a, um, a t-shirt company um, and you, you're going to name your, your company, uh, you know, whatever it is, boats, t-shirts. Uh, is there another company that's using that name? Uh, who knows? So maybe a Google search will help. You can also go to USPTO.gov, United States Patent and Trademark Office.gov, and there's searching tools there where you can actually search the trademark database and see, does anyone actually have this mark registered? Um, so those are the sort of the preliminary steps. And then talk to an attorney um, like myself. I will help do a little more searching to be um, more clear on, are we, are we fairly certain that no one else is out there using it? And then we can file with the Patent and Trademark Office, who will then do their own search. And uh, hopefully, if we've sort of done our diligence early on, we're fairly confident that there's no one else out there and we'll be able to get the mark through without too much um, hassle or effort and then get it on to registration. So uh, there are a few preliminary steps, and I always encourage people to do a little bit of searching on their own uh, because it will it'll shorten the process. Um, but again, you know, you want to pick something that's uh, – kind of an arbitrary word uh, or phrase or term, the more descriptive you get, the more difficult it is to get through. Because if it's describing the actual thing that you're uh, going to uh, be selling uh, or, or offering in business, then uh, you can get rejected because you know people need to use words to describe things. And that's the, the whole rationale. Outside of doing the Google search and search to see if the, there's any anything else, um, because you know, especially small business owners, they're scrambling to try to make money and anything. But is there? Uh, and I'm just throwing this out. I didn't prep you for it. But is there any documentation that should be done in advance um, before calling an attorney such as you? Let's say they do the uh, searching and they don't see anything else. But let's say they have you know, a widget that they're trying to figure out whether it's a patent or uh, it could be a shirt that they're trying to just uh, trademark. But is there any other, like, is there a process that has to be like outlined? Is there something simple they could work on to make your job easier? Sure. You know, if, if we're talking copyrights, then you want to know, has it, has your, whatever the work is that you're working on, is it a, a pamphlet or a picture or whatever, have you published it yet? Have you used it in, in a public forum? If you have, then you want to know that the date of publication. If it's a trademark and you're thinking, okay, I want to use this trademark with my business and some goods, well, have you been actually using the trademark or are you just thinking about using the trademark? If you actually have been using it, well, then you want to document when did you start, uh, what, you know, the date, month, day, month, year, 
month or year if if you can't get that specific. But when did you start using it? Uh, you got do you have some pictures of uh, the products that you were using uh, or how you were using or maybe some web pages showing the use, the product use. Um, if it's a patent, then hopefully you haven't disclosed it because one thing with patents is once you disclose the invention, either through a sale or an offer to sell or a publication, you have one year in which to file for your patent application. And if you don't file within a year, then you are absolutely barred forever from getting a patent on it. And the better practice is to file for your application before you publish it uh, or disclose it publicly in any way. And the reason for that is the American system is called the first-to-file system, which is the first person to put their patent application on file in the patent office is assumed to be the inventor. So if you publish something and your your potential invention, somebody else sees it and says, well, you know what, I, I can make it a little bit better. And they don't copy it exactly, but they they do pr- bring something new to the table because if they copy it exactly, that leads to a whole other ballpark. But uh, they they file their own patent application on something that's you know fairly similar to what you have. Their application can then preclude you from getting your patent because they filed first. So for patents, uh, it's it's highly desirable to uh, talk to your patent attorney on something you think might be patentable before you go and, and start publishing it, selling it, uh, or or offering it for sale, and then that dialogue will lead to whether or not, yes, this is something that we should file for patent protection on, or, or uh, you know, no, this isn't the type of thing that really lends itself to patent protection. Great information. And uh, before we wrap it up, uh, I want to circle back to something a little more personal. In 2019, you ran the Chicago Marathon. Uh, is there a, any any Chicago Marathon in you t- uh, this year or next year? Uh, probably not. You know, I, I, I did, I loved running the marathon. I love training for it. Uh, the second one that I had done, uh, and I was happy to be able to, to actually uh, run for the Danny did foundation, which uh, helps childhood epilepsy. But, um, it's, it's, uh, you know, you're a, a really big runner and obviously you did the, the huge races, but it's, it's such a time sink. Uh, I got a couple of kids that are, are starting to gobble up more and more time as they get older. So, uh, it's it's brutal to get out and try and get in some of those those long runs um, on a daily or even you know weekly basis. So I think I'm going to stick with just the casual um, running for enjoyment and just overall um, you know sort of health benefits, which which is good. But I'm keeping my runs uh, on the shorter side. Yeah, a yeah. I got mine coming up. Uh, 50 mile run. Uh, uh, I think it's the weekend before the Chicago Marathon. Last year I was scheduled to do both, but then they postponed both. And mm. so this year I'm just doing the the 50 miler run. And uh, yes, the training. Uh, you know, 4 a.m. run starts on the weekend for the long runs make you a little bit more tired in the Saturday or Sunday <laughs> evening when uh, you're hanging out with the family. But uh, Somehow you, you you fit it in when it's a when it's a goal, and I still want to get to 100 miles, so I got to keep keep the training up. And then once I'm done with that, I think I'm going to side with you. But 
obviously we went through a whole bunch of stuff for um, for companies nationwide. I know we're focused on small and mid-sized companies, but you do large companies as well. And so if anybody needed to get, get in touch with you to, to have a free consultation or even just uh, to talk further about anything that we discussed on this podcast, how do they get a hold of you? Uh, yeah, the easiest way would be uh, you can send me an email. Uh, my law firm, again, Ehrenberg Golgan, uh, if you just Google them, uh, I'll be there. But my email, direct email, is uh, my name, C, then Depreter, D-E-P-R-E-T-E-R, at A-G-D-G-Law.com. Uh, that's C-D-E-P-R-E-T-E-R, at A-G-D-G-Law. Uh, my phone number is 312-755-3153. You can give me a call, too. Uh, but, yeah, happy to connect with anyone. Uh Certainly an answer for the questions. We get uh, calls like that all the time from, from people and friends saying, you know, hey, uh, what about this idea or can I trademark this? Um, what steps should I be taking? And uh, try and walk them through the process. And again, it's, it's helping people determine whether or not they should take next steps uh, or, you know, so there's, there's plenty of times where the conversation ends up with, you know, you're, you're on the right path already. I don't think there's anything further you need to do. Um, but when when you are in a position to to take advantage of you know the protections that the that the government offers, then uh, you're you're gonna you're gonna end up paying dividends uh, in the long run. Like you always talk about your insurance, and so it's it's an investment up front for you know um, basically an insurance policy against your competitors coming into your territory. So by by making that the smaller investment up front, you protect yourself long-term from uh, either an allegation of infringement that might lead to a lawsuit or a competitor coming in and, and taking some of your territory. Definitely great stuff. I encourage anybody to reach, uh, reach out to Chip. Um, the link in the website and the phone number that Chip had mentioned will be in the show notes when we get this thing published. Hey, Chip, this has definitely been great. I appreciate your time and the content that you're providing for these businesses um, out there and what you're doing. And uh, I look forward to maybe having you on again and maybe get some updates on uh, what's going on in the small and mid-sized markets. You bet, Bush. It's always good talking to you. I appreciate the time and, and the opportunity.